Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. This is the word of the Lord. Praise team and Pastor Leslie for helping us get into this space together. Hey friends, I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FBC Pasadena and uh, I'm so, I'm really excited. Although I'm also a little terrified. You heard the passage that was read this morning. I, I feel as though, mm, if you're newer to us, you may have heard the reading for this passage and thought, oh no, I'm, I need to wait until he prays to start his sermon and slip out. This is one of those passages as I've gone back through the tradition and other people's preaching of it, and there's a lot of violence that can be done in this kind of preaching. So I want to say as we get started right now that we should all take a deep breath. Uh, what I'm not going to tell you this morning is that if you uh, refuse to give God God's due from your finances, that you're going to uh, be smitten by God. Like That's not the sermon. Uh, and some of you laugh like nervously because maybe you have this sense that Oh, that might be what God is like. But I am going to tell you a scary story to start. Uh, so let's get going here. There's this church somewhere in the Northeast, and it was a normal Sunday, probably a Sunday kind of like this. 
And the pastor had been there for decades. And before he gets up to preach, before the service starts, some folks in the congregation start whispering in the corners. And uh, they come up to him and they basically say, like, we know what you've done. Which is never a thing you want to hear as a pastor right before you get up to preach. Uh, turned out he'd been having an affair like decades earlier and he just never told anybody about it. And he'd been carrying this secret. So goes through the service. Just a few people know about this at this point. And as they get ready to leave, everybody's kind of making a beeline for the door. And then everybody stops them. And it's like, no, we have to have a church meeting. Okay. So they have a church meeting and they confront the pastor about this alleged uh, affair, indiscretion, hidden sin. And it's, the story says that people outside the church could hear all of the yelling happening inside. That one faction was yelling some version of crucify him. And then one faction was yelling, we love you, we support you, we're on your side. And then this pastor sitting here and what happens to the pastor? He has a heart attack and dies right there. Yeah. That's what's been on my mind this week. Is that kind of story. Uh, it's like the stakes feel high. These two people are part of this new burgeoning community. And this community is, is insane in all kinds of ways. And we'll talk about this morning. And there is this, what looks to be like a slight misstep in the story. And yet it ends with two deaths. Would y'all pray with me and let's dive in. God, open our hearts and our minds, our ears to hear again afresh. Forgive those who've been clumsy with this text in the past in ways that have injured folks here. Forgive me for any way that I'm clumsy over the next few minutes. But we trust that you're here with us to guide us in all uh, knowledge and truth. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite books I recommend to everyone who I care about is uh, this book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. And I recommend it to all of you now because I care for all of you. Uh, although I will say that I get like a 50-50 return rate that this is a terrible book from people. So, yeah, maybe you just borrow my copy before you spend the $20 on it. But this book is about gift economies over against market economies. And it's especially written for artists, for folks who work in creative fields, where the work you give to the world, it has a different kind of intrinsic value than the way that you might trade like commodities or stocks or real estate or something else. That there's something of our hearts that are in this. It's true of my work. It's true of anyone who's involved in a kind of creative pursuit. But the author, Lewis Hyde, talks about a gift economy. And says gift economies exist, well, in tribal societies, indigenous people groups, gift economies are the norm. We live inside of a capitalistic free market economy and gift is just not the way we understand the world. But let me just read you a couple of quotes from this book as we set up the story from Ananias and Sapphira. All right. There's this sort of, if there's a thesis statement for the book, it's this. It's that the gift must always move. In a gift economy, what is given has this kind of energy and vitality. And it is meant to be passed on from person to person, from group to group. We understand grace this way. We understand all generosity flowing from God, love and compassion in this way. That we don't receive it to hoard it, right, and put it in a storehouse. But as soon as we get it, we hand it over again. Blessing is the same kind of thing. 
we offer blessing to one another, especially at the end of this service. But distinctly, I say that this is for you, but through you to the world. The gift must always move. One man's gift, they say, must not become another man's capital. If an object is a gift, it keeps moving, which in the case means that man or woman who receives, they throw a big party and everybody gets fed. The gift that you receive isn't just for you, it's for all of creation. When someone manages to commercialize a tribe's gift relationships, the social fabric of the group is inevitably destroyed. Now we're getting closer to Ananias and Sapphira. One more reading for you from this book. We cannot really become bound to those who give us false gifts. And true gifts constrain us only if we do not pass them along. Only, I mean, if we fail to respond with an act or an expression of gratitude. Now you're kind of in the thick of it with Ananias and Sapphira. Because here's what's happened in this new Jesus movement after Pentecost. Two weeks ago, we prayed about when the Spirit descends on this community of folks and speech becomes true. They speak in a way that everybody can understand. And they tell about the great deeds of God acted through Christ in resurrection and all things being made new. And in that new world, there is this miracle that emerges. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we also prayed, talked about a story where there was a man who had been crippled from birth. And Peter and another disciple offer him healing. And that feels like the big miracle that we read about. However, there's this other thing that's happening in the early church, which is, you can read about it in the back of chapter 4. This economy had shifted, and the gift had been moving among them. Here's the way that they talk about it in the book of Acts. Now, the whole group of those who believed were in one heart and one soul. This is from chapter 4. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything that they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Then it tells the story of one person, a native of Cyprus, name was Joseph, whose apostles named him Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. He had sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is kind of the prologue to this story in chapter 5. And it's not the first time that the book of Acts talks about this kind of economy that has emerged. What we are waiting for, what we have been waiting for in the Jesus story, is a community, is a gathering. Something that we might call something like the beloved community. Where all things are held in common. And that ego, that selfishness, that this is mine and not yours mentality we all sort of grow up in, it starts to dissipate and kind of fade away. The real miracle that's happening in the book of Acts is that people are becoming deeply generous. And so it looks like this. It's this circle. That's what Lewis Hyde describes in the gift economy. And the larger the circle, the more that this sort of love and benevolence, it increases. That's the other beauty of a gift economy is when I hand you something of value to me and I ask you to hold it in sacred trust, uh, Bill then can make a choice. You could keep it, you could put it in a safe at home, or you might hand it back to Grant behind you. And if that gift works its way through this many people, it takes on this weightiness, which is the language of glory. These two people, Ananias and Sapphira, 
they sort of like dip their toes in the gift economy. But they're not all in. They jump in this circle right here. But in jumping in, they keep like one hand held firmly on the old world. In the old way. They keep some of the proceeds back in this kind of sleight of hand deception. And just very naturally, this image that comes to my mind is of this movement that happens with the gift. And this one group that kind of half in, half outs with their own giving, but with some strange motives. And when you hold on to the world while everything is spinning around you, like there's just this sort of ripping and tearing. There's this violence that might could happen, and that's what it feels like happens. It's like this new community is on a merry-go-round, spinning quite fast in this sort of joyful dance. And then this one person reaches out and grabs the old world and rips them away. That feels like the background to this story. As people are moving towards this spirit, the gift that Jesus is giving to the world, they are experiencing all of the signs of God's kingdom on earth. People are being healed. Relationships are being mended. Forgiveness is on offer. There is no needy among them. The earth is beginning to approximate heaven. This is what Jesus' prayer was in the Sermon on the Mount. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what we're seeing in this story. One writer calls the story of Ananias and Sapphira uh, a miracle in reverse. There's this action that takes place in this community of benevolence that sends it back toward a death pattern. So the question is, what are we supposed to see and understand as we come to this passage together? So let me just lay out a couple of things really uh, straightforward here. Daniel, you go to the next one for me. Just as a recap, Ananias and Sapphira... They seem to have some amount of wealth. And in uh, the sale that they make, they make an agreement with each other, kind of huddled off in secret, that they're going to give a portion to this new beloved community. But they're going to tell this community they're giving everything. But they've kept a little bit back to the side. And this sort of becomes this like conspiracy of two. And so they give, and then they are confronted and then in the confrontation, all of this stuff happens. But here's what happens when you give the gift into this new community. You're doing something with it that shifts it from property, right? They had this piece of land, they had this asset, and they take it out of the market and they move it into the gift economy. And in doing so, it creates this kind of sacred energy with it. Uh, it dedicates it. This is the way that offering works. This is the way we understand offering in the Old Testament, for instance. It's something that's dedicated to God. And once something is dedicated, once it takes on that kind of sacred weightiness, you're releasing it. And so then to go back and grab a handful of it is when you start to get into dangerous territory. And then just the story says pretty clearly that they die because of these actions. That's the, the logic of the story. There's a quote uh, that I love. Next one, Daniel. Uh, by one of my favorite writers named Annie Dillard. Anybody know Annie Dillard other than Rini? Because Rini always knows the authors to ask about. 
Uh, Annie Dillard is, uh, well, just you should go read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek or any of her essays or her book on writing. Um, she talks about uh, the faith a lot. She has this quote about Christians that I love that I'll read to you. She says, on the whole, I don't find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We see some hats in here, right? It's madness. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews, for the sleeping God may someday take offense and wake, or the waking God may draw us out from where we can never return. Dillard is asking us to take seriously the conditions that God might be in our midst and that the God who is in our midst is the living God. And so much of the time, and this is true of us too, of me too, we show up in this space expecting absolutely nothing to happen. As though we worship an idea or a math equation that makes sense when we add up all the variables and it equals Get to heaven when you die. But worship at its deepest and truest is an engagement with the living God. And it is fraught. It is a fraught activity. Early in Israel's history, they recognize this. When God shows up on the mountain in Exodus, they say, we can't go near that God. That God seems full of power. And this God that is full of power has sort of concentrated God's spirit on this emerging community in a way that all the signs of the kingdom of God are bursting forth and healing and generosity is pouring out and power and authority, it says. Reminds me of sort of miscalculation kids make around electricity, right? You all have this story. This is what outlets are for, for plugging things in. That's how it's supposed to work. But at some point, you get curious about what's happening inside that outlet. And you do something like this. Now, I showed Corey this slide, and she goes, you're going to tell them not to do that, right? Because there are kids present. So, real quick disclaimer, so that uh, there's no uh, liability for me or the church. Don't do this. Are we clear? Don't stick scissors in outlets. But... There is this kind of miscalculation about what's happening inside all of that energy and power when you sort of curiously, that's what's happening in this story. Just a miscalculation about the power of God present in the community. But there is this question that will arise. What is the sin? What is the thing that causes the dying? And then the next question some of you are asking is, how can I make sure I never do that thing? Right? I mean, if you believe that these stories have some weight and validity for our own lives, then the next question you should ask is, how do I not do that thing? Yeah. So let's go over the story one more time. Ananias and Sapphira, they consent to sell a piece of property and withhold some of the proceeds. They brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Peter confronts them. 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Terrifying set of questions. While it was unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You didn't lie to us, but to God. Now Ananias hears these words, falls down, and dies. He's carried out, prepared for burial, and he's buried. Three hours later, his wife shows up. Same kind of questions. How much did you sell this land for? So-and-so price? Yes, that's how much we sold it for. What? How is it that you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately, she falls down and she dies. I've read this hundreds of times this week, and each time I read it, it feels like a horror story. The way that the, the narrator's telling it, it feels terrifying. Like it, it's like it's supposed to feel quite terrifying. The first thing that happens is this language here. Asphizo is the word in the Greek. It means that they held some back. But it doesn't exactly just mean that they sold it for $1,000 and they gave 900 The verb says that they embezzled some of it. That's what the verb means. I've figured out what it looks like. So I'm going to grab just I'm going to grab an offering plate in the back. By the way, we're going to do the offering at the end of the service. Don't be scared. <laughs> but don't do what I'm about to just about to uh, give you an example for. Nasfizo looks like this. The plate goes by and I or someone here in the front takes out a big like Scrooge McDuck thing of gold coins and pours it in in front of you and you hear it jangle around and you're just so proud of me that I've given so much money to the church and oh my goodness and so then the plate moves to the back so would you mind carrying it to the back you have to actually carry it to the back you're going to leave you can't that's nosfizo you have to take it so then what I would do after bill starts to move is I would very like nonchalantly slip down and go under the pew and then I would crawl all the way to the back. That's, imagine I crawled all the way to the back. And then when none of y'all can see what's happening, I would take out a little bit of the money, scoop it out, and put it back in my pocket. That is Nosfizo. Can we give Bill a hand? It isn't simply that they held a little bit of theirs back, because I imagine when each of you give some today, that you're not giving everything you own. That's not the problem here. The problem is that they pretend to give and then they scoop a little bit out for themselves. It's not the first time that this has happened in the scriptures. So this is their mistake in the beginning. It's not just the withholding, it's the deceit that comes along with the withholding. And they carry with them this intimate knowledge that they have been pretending with this community, that they are not really invested or present in the way that those around them are. Their gifts were towards strange ends, and they meet strange ends. It sends them hiding. Now we get to our own natural response to this kind of action. Concealment. 
Peter says, why would you lie? Why would you deceive the spirit? This isn't the first time this kind of story has happened. All of these words, the Greek and the Hebrew words behind this story, they sort of all pile on to tell us a version of an old story and then another old story. We don't have a ton of time to talk about these two, but I figured like I would take the hardest passage in the book of Acts to preach. And I would also take the hardest passage from the book of Joshua to tell you about. Uh, so in Joshua chapter 7, there is this story about the Israelites are moving into this new land and there happens to be other nations who were there in the midst of war and violence and conquering. They end up with a bunch of plunder bunch of gold and silver and jewels and those sort of things. And there was this rule that they were given. You're not supposed to keep any of that stuff. Because to keep some of that stuff may, in fact, like wedge you to that old way and that old religion. And God is doing this new thing. So all of it's supposed to be dedicated. There's that word again. It's supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. But there's this one person named Achan. And Achan nosfizos a little bit of the stuff. And he digs a hole and he hides it under his tent. And so after this happens... This sort of, uh, like desecration is entered into the community. And they go out to war again and like a bunch of people get slaughtered. And there's this question, like, what happened? I thought God was with us. And then God sends a message, someone has kept some back and is hiding it. And so they go through this ritual of discovery, confront Achan. He's like, yes, that was me. I did it. The story ends terribly. I don't want to tell you anymore about it. It's just an awful, awful story. He dies and a bunch of other people die. That's the spoiler alert. There's this other verb that shows up in this story from Joshua, though. And it's super hard to say. Kahash. It sounds like you're just coughing. Kahash. And it means to deceive. The story of Joshua... Don't hide it from me. My son, give glory to God, Israel. Make confession to him. Tell me now what you've done and do not kahash it from me. Don't hide it from me. This is one of these words that I've been chasing for about a decade now. Uh, It means to deceive or to lie. But in the beauty of the Hebrew language, it means a whole host of things. And one of the things this word means is to grow lean of spirit. It's as though your soul becomes emaciated in the deception. And here the ancient wisdom tells us a deep truth about our own lives. Because how many secrets have you held for a long time? And what has it done to your insides? What is the very mention of that kind of thing doing to some of your insides right now? This recoiling, this turning back, this disengaging and hoping that no one knows what you think you've hid. It's deeply damaging stirs up shame and it causes us to hide the other story that the book of Acts is retelling is the story of Adam and Eve it says that they take what God had limited and in the taking they find themselves full of guilt and shame and so they hide hide their nakedness, hide their vulnerability and God finds them and asks a set of questions that end in a pronouncement that death has entered into creation now. This is Genesis 3. But it's the same thing. 
this leanness of soul, this emaciated spirit, that is a condition that many of us live with for a long, long time. And this is the Ananias and Sapphira that are greeted by Peter in truth. What have you been up to? The Apostle Paul, who writes like the second half of the New Testament, you know this verse, says the wages of sin is death. And you see here in this story, and in this host of stories, that truth enacted. So here's the question. Who kills them? If we can figure out who kills them, we might be able to figure out how to avoid a similar fate ourselves. So there's been all of this research, and I've done a ton of reading this week. The most obvious, and I think the most common answer to that question is, well, God kills them, right? It's God's power at work in the community, and God is de- dealing deep judgment on these two people, and so God kills them, right? That's, that's the God I know, the God who smites. The text does not say that. Really clear. The text does not say that God kills them. Twice, the text has an option of saying that God kills them. And twice, it avoids the accusation. Death kills them. That's like an obvious answer. One person I read this week, it said this. Maybe, maybe Peter kills them. <laughs> Peter loves to kill people. Or at least likes to use his sword. Like, if you're going to have a sword, don't waste your sword. That's Peter. You remember Peter in the garden, whenever Jesus is being arrested, cuts the guy's ear off? And Jesus is like, settle down, Peter. And then at some point, Jesus says to Peter, like, they're going to come after me, and they're going to take me prisoner, and I'm going to die. And Peter's like, ah, over my dead body, or over their dead body. Right? Peter, he's got the fight. And so this, this commentator says that Peter does the Lord's bidding. Which is part of why they shuffle the bodies off really quick to bury them. It's like burying the evidence. Peter kills them over a big tarp. Right? Like Breaking Bad style. This is the way that we try to figure this out. I don't think that Peter killed them, by the way. The text says that they died. It's actually a little bit specific about the way that they die. Before we get to that, I want to show you just one picture of the way this has gotten interpreted over time. This is a painting by Raphael. It was supposed to end up in the Sistine Chapel, but didn't quite make it. And this is the scene of Ananias and Sapphira. It's a little bit dark, so I'm going to highlight some of the characters for you. Because there are four distinct groups in this picture. And uh, this really gets at what I think is the common reading of Ananias and Sapphira. So here are the characters in this. You've got on the The middle, the top, right, the seats of authority are raised up on the platform, the apostles or the disciples. And then the one on kind of the far right, second to the right, is definitely Peter pointing. Like this. This is Peter. We'll get to his face in a second. The bottom middle here is Ananias, and he is in the middle of death. They've caught this moment of dying. And then off to the right, just barely out of frame, is Sapphira, the partner. And she's counting. That's what you see in this picture. She's counting up however much they've saved behind. And then on the left side, just for a little bit of like backslap, is the rest of the community giving money to the poor. 
This is the scene as it unfolds. But I love or hate the way that uh, he paints their faces. This is a zoomed in of the, the apostles. And can you see Peter's face to the right here? Let's do one more closer. You see, it doesn't, doesn't look very happy. But I can, I, so I sharpen it a little bit so you can see like really his facial expression. And uh, <laughs> that's what he looks like. Peter's mad. Peter's really, really mad. I'm going to read it for you again, the questions that he asks. And listen, like this is the Peter who's asking these questions. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of these proceeds of this land? While it remained unsold, did you not have control over it? It remained your own and after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you've contrived these deeds in your heart. Really, really frustrated. Says it again to Sapphira. How is it that you agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? This is the tone of Peter, vengeful and angry and ready to do God's justice. I've sat with this for a while now and it has not set well with me. Because the next question that I ask about these, like, what is the lesson for us here? Don't lie to the spirit. Okay, check. Feels like we can say with some assurance that feels clear. But what happens if you do? What happens if you like fall into some kind of deception? Some of you are thinking right now, would you please show me where the back door is to the story, John Jay? Because I'm carrying around with me this amount of crushing shame and I need to know there's a way out. We hear these questions and for some reason are trained to hear them as accusations, as condemnation. From Peter, if you go back to the book of Genesis from God, why are you hiding? The assumption that when we fall off the path, that those who see the path clearly only see us into judgment and see us into the worst of our situation, into the death patterns that we are entertaining. But what if that is not what Peter is saying in this passage? If God isn't said to kill them, and Peter's not said to kill them, but simply that they just die, is there something else happening here? I want to read it for you one more time. Because imagine if Peter is actually filled with Christ's spirit. And then imagine... If the spirit of Christ is freedom or is love, imagine that those words from the gospel of John, that in Christ there's no condemnation. I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. Imagine that later in the New Testament, when that phrase shows up, perfect love casts out fear. That the story we are hearing today, full of megaphobos, full of super fear, is a story where people have chosen the path away from God over and over and even into death again. And then imagine that this breaks Peter's heart. Imagine this breaks all of their hearts. And that group of disciples standing up high, that that is not the way that they were postured. Imagine that that despair enters into them. And that the questions are please. Our invitations. I'll read it again. 
Ananias. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? Or again to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are here to bury you as well. Peter is learning to love the world as Christ has taught him to love the world. And he encounters these two courting death, inviting death into this community. It's got to hurt, right? And we hear the questions as an accusation. Feel the questions as violence, as a fist dealing out God's judgment. But I'm going to ask you if you would feel them and see them and hear them as an invitation to repentance, to turning. It doesn't have to be this way. And any anger that Peter feels in the questions, that anger at death still working in the world, and that God's kingdom is only approximating to the dream and the hope. That death is still working death's ways, even at the heart of the community. Why have you done this? When God asks the questions in the garden, where are you? Who has deceived you? This is the invitation that this story is offering to all of us now, today. You don't have to hide in this shame Ananias and Sapphira, come into the light. (laughs) The tendency, and I think I came to this realization like 12 hours ago, the tendency in being confronted with the truth of who we are is to have it wash over us in such a way that it buries us. That we assume if people knew about us, what we know about us, they would just, they would toss us out on the streets for sure. And if they had a button that caused the violence of God to be visited upon us, they would press it for sure. And so church becomes the place of our deepest pretending. Where we never trust the truth. And so we carry in here all kinds of deceptions. All kinds of leanness of spirit. And where is healing in that? If you can't be seen. And the questions of how are you this week when they feel like an accusation instead of an invitation into a deeper truth. Turns out we actually don't learn a lesson here. Because Ananias and Sapphira, they don't learn a lesson. They just give up. It says that they fall down And they give up the ghost. That's the word in the Greek. That they breathe out actively their spirit. It's as though Peter sees them kind of at the precipice and says to them, you don't have to go that way. You do not have to fall into this pit. In a hand outstretched in questions. 
And then the text falls silent. And they fall down and they die. Learning nothing. Experiencing no new transformation. What they don't realize is that God's new community is a community of reconciliation and forgiveness. They definitely could not imagine that they could bring out the truth of their lives and that they would be met in compassion. So then the question becomes, can you, can I, can we? Can we trust God and one another to show up? A lot of us are carrying stuff. Sources of shame that drive us to places of despair. To make everything around us look like fists heading toward our lives. Shrinking back and hiding. An encounter with the living God will create some kinds of fears and tremblings. Senses of unworthiness. But if this place cannot be a space where you can show up, then we have failed enormously. And yes, we are going to fail at times. We're going to deceive ourselves and others. We're going to choose violence and anger. And it is not an option to hide those things. We have to trust one another. That we can be a community that practices Forgiveness and restitution and setting people upright. Ananias and Sapphira, they don't learn anything, but we might. If we see the chances that they missed to reach a hand back out to the God who's always offering us the way back home. Would you pray with me? God, I pray a prayer of clarity for this congregation. That the truth of you and all of your complexity would be made known. And for the half vision that we have been given from our traditions, from bad versions of the faith, that they would be filled out in deeper truth. That we would trust the you we see in Christ. Submitting to the worst this world has to offer. And not retaliating in violence, but offering forgiveness. Help us to know ourselves. And that we might show ourselves to those who we trust. Give folks here, God, safe friends they can show up to who would be for them your presence and your spirit and there would be no needy among us and so many of us need a place to show up so lift the shame that so burdens so many set the table unlock the front door And welcome us home.
we are in fact so homesick, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.